why isn't anybody using our data and dashboards we're sending out? Well, because you have 87 variables on it. It gets sent out every day and it's 37 pages long. I'm overwhelmed just thinking about it, let alone having it sit in my inbox. And so our advice is, again, a, a less is more approach. Let's start with the very few key metrics and, and use that as our starting point and then start to build the foundation so that they're not sitting in isolation, that when the time comes that we want to ask more questions about that data, the data is readily available to do so. But Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. I know you and I have talked about this before. I have such a mental uh, barrier with exercise. And it's funny how the opposite of what one would expect, or at least I would expect, is always true. Like, it's like, I'm too tired. I'm too stressed out to exercise. Then I get on the bike and I ride for seven miles. And it's like, I am amped up with energy and the stress has all been burned off. Like, let's Mm -hmm. go. Yeah. Convincing myself to like get on it. I'm on a two day streak of seven miles a day. So I'm going to, I'm going to go right after, uh, after we record today. So nice, nice. Yeah. It's, it's one of these things like you have to build the momentum and it is, it's so easy sometimes in the morning. Like I'm trying to get better. Like I got myself into a rut with the summer where I sleep in a little bit later, but I sleep in instead of getting up at quarter of six, it's (laughs) up a quarter of seven. Yeah. Come down, get the coffee going. Suzanne would come back from the gym because she she actually goes to the gym. I, I work out at home. Same. Uh, you know, um, she'd be getting home from the gym. We'd sit down, we'd talk over a cup of coffee, and then the kiddo would wake up. And next thing you know, it's like, crap, it's 8 o'clock. I could go do something, but I really need to get work done today. And I just got into this rut, and it's like, no, I'm really trying to push myself um, to go to bed even earlier. So like mm. I'm getting up with her, and I'm I'm on a streak this week. So far this week, I've been doing good getting up and getting a really good stretch in like, I mean, 30 minutes of stretching. Nice. Um, because my, my heel, my left heel has been bothering me and my right calf has been bothering me. Like because of, I'm, I've got the half marathon coming up in yeah. a month and a half. Um, so I've been out, you know, running, jogging, walking, a mix of all three in the morning. So I'm really trying to get good at, 30 minutes of stretching, cup of coffee, and then get out. So like the last three mornings I've done that, I've gone out. Today, I only did three miles. The previous two days, I did five. I mean, one mile is impressive to me. I hate, hate running. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I hate it too. It's <laughs> and, I, and we've talked about it so many times before. It's doing it because it's hard. Yeah. I hate it. It's yeah. awful. Um, and people are like, oh, would you do the, the, the Broad Street run in Philadelphia or do this marathon or that half marathon? I'm like, no. I'm going to go run in fun places. Yeah. I'm going to go run at the shore. I'm going to go run in Disney world because it's a fun place to run with a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. Are you, uh, are you doing, are you, do you have a firm timeline or deadline at night to like put away electronics to help you get to sleep earlier? 
I need to be much, much better at that. I'm horrible at it. I am awful because, and it started to happen last night. I caught myself where um, I fell asleep on the couch. We put the kiddo to bed and I was just like, I I could feel myself getting really tired. I I dozed off on the couch for about half an hour. The next thing you know, Suzanne's there waking me up. It's like, oh, it's coming to bed. I'm like, all right, let me go make sure everything's locked up. I sit down on the couch and I start watching something and I'm Mm. like, oh, I want to see this. (laughs) And then next thing you know, it's like, crap, I really got to get to bed. Yeah. Um, so I'm really trying to get better at putting the electronics away. And I mean, one of the things I like having about the Kindle, now I mean, granted, I've got the Kindle app on my iPad, on my my laptop and everything. But with the Kindle, the light is different yeah. than the other yeah. devices. I agree. So I try to keep the, the Kindle charged at my bedside as a way of like, just go up and read a chapter and it's going to put you to sleep. Even yeah. if like you feel like wired and you don't want to go to bed. It's I can lay in bed. I could read a chapter of something. I need to do that and fall asleep. Yeah, I need to do that. What are you uh, what are you reading right now? Um, I'm going back and forth between a couple things. So um, I picked up multipliers after yeah. seeing a that's what I'm reading right now. Yeah. Um, I haven't started that yet. Okay. But um, I st- also have a book going and I've, I found myself getting into a habit where I'll go like read a chapter, a couple chapters or something and flip over and come back and almost start and i've never been like this but having multiple books running in parallel yeah um i'm reading a fiction book and it's the third book in a series by this sci-fi slash like steampunk author and the late drummer from rush oh interesting rush's album their last studio album i think came out in 2011 was was that they were known for their thematic um progressive albums you know and it told this whole story almost similar to the alchemist Do you ever read the book the alchemist i haven't no okay put that on your list too um uh, i've read that twice um i think i've got a copy sitting here somewhere um i actually bought the i actually have a physical copy of it so it's a story along the lines of paulo coelho i think is how you say his last name um uh yeah, Paolo Coelho's The Alchemist. It's a story similar to that. Well, they actually fleshed it out into a book. Um, and then the 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 lead singer of Rush, di- or not the lead singer, the drummer, Neil Peart, died um, January of 2020. And then the, this is the third book in the series, which, you know, he they were working on up until his passing, and then the, the author finished it. Got it. Interesting. So, yeah, it's, it's this whole, like, kind of steampunk thing, but it's all about the journey. Mm. um it is it's like and that, that's what the alchemist is about the alchemist is about you know the journey um and it you know everyone becomes focused with the destination and in this case it's it's the journey to get there um so and it's also a coming of age story too so it, it's it's fun i, I want to you know, again to be the completest is to read the third book in the series it came out back in april Sounds up my alley. I'm I'm trying something similar. I have historically read multiple books concurrently, like two or three, but they've all been nonfiction. And right now I'm trying to do one nonfiction, one fiction concurrently okay. and see if that gives me a better balance. Like I love by and far and large, uh, I'm a nonfiction fan, just as with movies, I'm much more drawn to documentary, but sometimes you need just something else to kind of give yeah. it meaning and balance. So I'm, I'm trying that. So I'm reading, um, I'm reading multipliers, um, right now. I think I'm, I think I'm about halfway through multipliers. It's, 
I'm getting so many ideas. Um, mm-hmm. such, such a great read so far. Uh, and then I'm rereading um, Dharma Bums um, in okay. parallel, Jack Kerouac. Um, so we'll see. We'll see if this makes it uh, more meaningful, more enjoyable to read concurrently, but one fiction, one nonfiction. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I've got going on. And I'm going to try. I've got the Kindle as well. And I agree. The lighting is really nice. I'm going to try to like, as hard as it is, put my phone on the charger far away from me. And if mm-hmm. I need something, have the Kindle there, read a chapter or two. And then because I have I'm in this bad habit of going down rabbit holes on YouTube on my phone late at night of just yeah. <laughs> all sorts of weird content. So uh and i've it's been so all easy over to fall into that it's so it is i've been like and it's so disconnected right now like i'll, I'll get in bed and i'm like i'm tired and then i'll pick up the phone and then i watch a bunch of chess breakdowns so i watch this guy that breaks down chess games between grandmasters and it's super entertaining to me uh i'm horrible at chess but i enjoy watching it um then i've been watching police um interrogation videos <laughs> um and then um i've been watching um city skyline city skyline builds oh you've told me about that i've looked up a couple of those so calming and relaxing to me though to watch those builds my my guilty pleasure is is like those areas where they have like the live camera set up oh yeah yeah so there's this whole thing it's called virtual rail fan um and they have a subscription on their website but then they have live cameras set up but like all these different kind of like interesting train stations and crossings and whatnot. And they, they have a free version streaming on YouTube. Mm. Um, and it's so much fun because they've got one uh, posted this little short line railroads, the tourist destination up in um, close to, it's not necessarily central Pennsylvania, but getting towards central Pennsylvania um, up in that area. They've got this this great little town in Kentucky where the train, a freight train, not like a small passenger train or a trolley, a full-size freight train runs right down the street. Oh, wow. Uh, right down the middle of Main Street. It's called LaGrange. The, the town's called LaGrange, Kentucky. Hmm. As they've got a camera set up and you can see it like, I mean, it's it's seriously like you know, you've got people driving and next thing you know, the train's coming behind you and you got to pull over and get out of the way. That's crazy. Yeah, it's 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 insane. Like that, they're they're known for that. So they've got stuff like that. You know, like that's kind of fun and cool to 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 sit and watch. And yeah, so that's one of my guilty pleasures. When I was into watching the guy that cleared drains, um, were you the one that turned me on to the real time train ride in between two European cities that was like five hours long? Yeah, uh, Oslo. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, she uh, she recorded so she what she does is she records it and then schedules it and then it goes out as a like a live broadcast because you could do that with youtube you can set your video as a premiere so then when it it first publishes it streams it so anybody who clicks on it picks up on where it is in the stream Uh, and then you can go back and watch it from the beginning later um so that's what she does is she mounts a like a gopro in the front of the train on you know the shifts that she's working as the engineer and then records the whole run so mm. in the winter you get all of the the winter runs very cool I, there's so yeah there's just so much amazing content on there there is it, yeah. it, 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 it's it's a lot of fun yeah well 
should we get into our main topic here yeah yeah and i really don't have a transition so we're just going to jump right into it um so you know well actually there, there could be a bit of a, a a segue here you know you were just talking about content so publishing and distributing data um you know that's what I want to talk about today. Okay. So I want to continue our topics around um, the the job of analytics, you know, doing the job of analytics, as well as we've been layering in the, the perspective of sustainability and sustainable analytics. Yeah. So today I want to talk about the difference between reporting and insights, because I've gotten this question a lot over the last couple of months from, from clients and a couple of the prospect calls I've sat in on uh, with you, like early, you know, when we get to that solutioning part and, you know, what we found is, is at least what I've observed is, is when working with data and distributing it either to, to clients, depending upon your role or, or internal stakeholders, that this line that does exist between reporting and insights is often, is often blurred. So, Let's just start off with a broad question. What is reporting and what is insights? That's a good, a good, a good place to start. And I would put that there, there's probably a third tier uh, as well. And I think oftentimes that's where it starts to bleed over into what is analysis, what is insights, what is commentary. Um, you know, so from a reporting standpoint, we, we look at it as, what are the things that we need to understand um, in order to operate the day-to-day? -day? It's kind of like your your dashboarding, but at a, at a layer down where you may need a little bit more insight, um, a little bit more weight to to the data. So if we look at the like the hierarchy, I think of kind of dashboards like the dashboards on your car. Um, what are the few key metrics I need to make sure that I get from point A to point B? Um, and that's where I think a lot of companies uh, trip up is, and I think we've talked about it before. We worked with this company that, that said, hey, we're having a hard time getting people to um, actually read our, our dashboards. I'm like, well, talk to me about what you're doing. It's like, well, we send them out every day um, and it's like 18 pages long of this like massive Excel spreadsheet with mm -hmm. 86 different measures. I'm like, that's not a dashboard. What the hell? I'm like, no wonder they're not looking at. So we, you know, if we look at the hierarchy dashboard is like your very distilled metrics of the critical things you need to get from point A to B. Am I going to run out of gas? Am I going too fast? and going to get a, a ticket. Is my engine overheating? Reporting is going to take it a level down from there in order for us to understand a bit more insight into some of those key measures. So think about, um, you know, I'm on a road trip and my check engine light comes on. So I pull into the auto zone and grab their computer and slap it on my car. It's like, oh, air code XYZ means that, you know, you have an engine overheating problem um, and kind of giving you some more, more detail around that. So, you know, oftentimes we look at reporting as dashboarding where we send out the reporting on a cadence and we expect people to, to look at it and consume it. But they don't, right? So if you think about just your day-to-day -day life, you know, do you get reports and consume it? Uh, I'm trying to think where I get reports a lot. For me, it's from my bank. You know, it's like yeah. if you've ever bought, whether it's your 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 savings account or if you know you have an investment. You know, we have a 401k through 336, so you get you know stuff from there based on which um, securities or what investments you've purchased. I get reports from them all the time, but it, to me, it just doesn't mean anything because it's on this cadence and it's like, okay, a report to me would be more meaningful if something happened. 
something went up, something went down. Here's the details on what happened. But where it's on this cadence where we're treating it like a dashboard, it oftentimes gets ignored. I don't know about you, but this, you know, report comes said, here's, here's the re- monthly, you know, shareholders report on XYZ stock. You own. I'm like, I don't care. I'm like toss it. it goes right in the shredder in my, in the, uh, out in the trash bin, if it's a digital copy. Um, so let's talk about what reporting should be and then how it starts to move down that, that path of insights. Again, um, I struggle with reporting being on a, a cadence of like, you get this every day. Now it can be on a cadence, but something more meaningful around why we're consuming it and taking the time to then say, this isn't just something for us to look at and say, oh, that's neat. It really needs to be combined with some sort of insight. And this is where we see a lot of companies struggling is they provide what they call commentary. I don't know if you've heard that term or you've seen it before, but I've it's, seen it, yeah. hey, let's put together a report in Google Analytics. And before we send it out to stakeholders, we'll put some commentary on it. Hey, you'll notice here that conversion rate went up by half of a percent. Um, really what, what commentary is, is just that, right? There's not a lot of depth of insight into why. It's just kind of, pointing out what may be the obvious, Hey, this one up, this went down, you know, you may want to look into that deeper. Um, what really needs to happen in these cadences of reporting is going from commentary to insight. And what insight is, is really starting that analytical process to ask and answer questions of, okay, we see that the conversion rate, you know, week over week or month over month, whatever our reporting cadence is went up half of a percent. Why did that happen? Oh, well, by the way, we ran this marketing campaign or we just rolled out a new design to the, you know, booking funnel or, you know, and so then it starts to get into that path of moving from just observations to actually starting to provide some reasons behind why the data is the way it is. I don't know if that answered your question. I kind of rambled. No, it was good. Um, So like, you know, we're, we're, we're doing a bit of contrasting here, the, the differences between the two. Um, two follow-up questions. Where's the overlap? And then if you were coaching someone in this area, where would you tell someone to focus their time? So I think they all overlap and support each other. And that's why I think it's important to, to see it as, as kind of a, hi- a, a hierarchy or a pyramid or however you want to visualize it. But it's, again, it's, it's, it's having the right information at the right level of detail, at the right cadence, at the right time. And, and they all overlap, right? If they're disconnected, then we're going to have a problem. So again, if we look at our dashboarding as our few critical measures to, to monitor the health of the business, um, those then need to be supported by reporting that help support those metrics. So we may only look at conversion rate or a few metrics, but there's a whole bunch of reports and detail underneath that that we may want to look at on a cadence, say quarterly. Um, and then underneath that, there's a whole lot more insights and analysis that that needs to take place. So as we work with companies, um, our advice is often a top-down approach, uh, again, of a less is more, right? Where oftentimes, and I, I kind of poke fun at it, but it's such a great example where companies are so excited and proud of all this data that they captured that they just have to shove it down everyone's throat, right? It's like, why isn't anybody using our data and dashboards we're sending out? Well, because you have 87 variables on it. It gets sent out every day and it's 37 pages long. I'm overwhelmed just thinking about it, let alone having it sit in my inbox. 
And so our advice is, again, a, a less is more approach. Let's start with the very few key metrics and, and use that as our starting point and then start to build the foundation so that they're not sitting in isolation, that when the time comes that we want to ask more questions about that data, the data is readily available to do so. But, uh, you know, can you imagine in your car driving down the street where you had this dashboard that stretched from passenger side to driver side with 57 different measures of, you know, tire pressure and engine heat and coolant heat and average miles per gallon and all these different measures in your face all the time, it would be overwhelming. You would simply start ignoring everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's the common thing with, cause I I've seen that, that whole scenario too, with like the, you mentioned at the beginning and you just brought it up again with these like massive dashboards. They, you know, they call them dashboards, these massive dashboards. And when I say they, I mean, you know, clients I've worked with and it's, but it's anything, but these, these, these scheduled reports that go out daily that are pages and pages long and the fatigue that sets in from many in the organization, um, that because it's so much and so frequent that the, nobody gets any kind of value out of it. And if anything, they just, they, 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 they delete it. They ignore it because there's, there's too much and I don't have time to sit there and, and digest it all. I'm just moving on. It, it's overwhelming. It sits in your inbox and it gets to the point where it's so heavy that you don't even open it anymore. You just delete it. Um, you know, going back and tying it into our, our kind of opening rambling, one of the other uh, genres of YouTube that I'm into is is flight. And so I follow a lot of professional pilots. Um, and one of the professional pilots I follow does um, accident breakdowns, um, where if there's a, a plane crash, pub, you know, private or, or commercial, um, he'll break down the, the, the crash and kind of talk through the details on why it happens. And um, I wish I remember the book that I was reading, uh, so I could give it proper credit. But in this book, it, it, it was all about data and, and making sure it's in the right context and thinking about things in a logical way. They brought up um, a specific airline accident um, that they can, one of the contributing factors was um, pilot overload of information. Interesting. That the dashboard that they had in front of him had so much going on that he couldn't focus on the few key measures that could have potentially helped avoid um, a catastrophic accident. And so the argument was that dashboards need to be contextual to the situation. So in this situation where the plane was having specific issues, everything else should have gone into the background, you know, been grayed out, blurred out, and the few critical measures that need to be addressed should come front and center so that that could be the focus of fixing the problem in a, in a timely manner. And again, I think it's it, there's such a good parallel to to business where we, we we have these dashboards as so static and just everything needs to be on there that when there is a problem that either it's ignored because we've overwhelmed the consumer and so they now just delete the dashboard, they ignore it, or they actually look at it, but there's so much happening and there's so much fatigue of trying to view it all that they're unable to focus on the few key measures and really hone in on the actual problem that is happening. So I really love the concept and the suggestion brought up that your, your dashboards need to be flexible and be contextual. And when there's an issue that things need to kind of 
fuzz out, you know, if you've seen that photo editing or video editing software where you can bring something to focus and the stuff yep. may still be there, but you kind of fuzz it out to force your focus in certain areas. Um, you know, that really gives us a much better likelihood of consuming the data. And I, and I think, and maybe you purposely set it up this way, a lot of what we're talking about here is not more, but less of things that a less is more approach tends to put businesses in a better position to use data in a meaningful and valuable way that the way that we're working now, where again, we have this dashboard with 87 different measures on it. It's so overwhelming that we're simply not using it and it's counterintuitive, but going into these companies and saying, let us help you kind of, uh, get rid of your hoarding uh, problem you have here. Let's just focus on a few key things. It instantly transforms the value that they're able to get out of their their analytics programs. Yeah, I, I, and that's actually funny because I was actually thinking of that when you were talking about like fuzz out and zoom in, like everything else get, gets blurry. And that's exactly the visual I had um, with it. Because, and that's the thing is like, because then I don't want it to be part of this conversation, but like the, the next logical step from here is, is, you know, like you were talking about with like that pyramid or, or levels to it, reporting being a component, insights being a component, commentary being a component. The next step is, is data activation from there, not just showing what happened and analyzing what happened and trying to determine why it happened and either is it an issue we need to address or is it an opportunity we should look into um you know even the, the you know not just the issues but get what gets lost even more are those opportunities because you're focusing on such mundane stuff and i'll go back to one example i had of this client daily dashboard that went out it had like pathing on search terms and it's like okay that's great if you want to dig into it you want to have some kind of workspace to look into it to see if you pick up any trends, but that should not be part of a daily, a daily dashboard because then you're going to blur out say other opportunities where, you know, a, an easy optimization opportunity has usually been just looking at null search terms. That's what I, I coach a lot of clients on. That's one of the first things you want to make sure you're capturing is, is what are people searching for that return no results? Yeah. So if you're, if you have all of these, weird derivatives of various dimensions pathing on search terms and and whatnot you lose the opportunity of saying we're seeing an increased trend of people searching for this product which we don't have the specific one but we have something similar mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that is a, a great example and, and and i'd actually throw out there that part of this over instrumenting or over designing the the data distribution strategy is either consciously or subconsciously by design on purpose um Ooh, i'm and, interested by way you know with the, the on purpose part yeah and you know this is probably going to go down a, a path that's way outside the scope of this conversation so we should probably earmark it for a future episode but i've been thinking a lot about um the people in organizations and specifically within analytical roles um, how they think about their job day to day. And I was, I was forced to wrestle with this question last week when I was very blunt with the feedback I provided to one of our clients and was told as much. It's like, wow, you kind of don't hold back there, do you, Jason? You kind of just gave it to us. Um, and I, 
I was kind of struck by that. I'm like, is that a is that a problem? And I I, I honestly didn't understand, you know, why that was such a shock. And I talked with various colleagues and I talked with our, one of our business advisors and, um, our, one of our business advisors said to me, well, you're not, you're, you're wrong in this sense, Jason, you're not, and you're not normal in that, um, that, that kind of approach is scary for lots and lots of people in analytics organizations. Um, in that the minute that they start sticking their neck out or putting the spotlight on themselves, there, there is an introduction of a fear factor in which perhaps their employment may be in jeopardy. And that we have to remember that for many, many people, especially at these large companies, that their primary goal is to protect their livelihood, their job. And anything that can be done um, to put the spotlight on them could potentially put that in question and so what I've been wrestling with, and I'm going to go back to, I think, a Michael Helbling quote or tweet that someone sent to me as I was talking about this. They said, oh, this sounds like a, a tweet Michael Helbling put out um, when I was talking with them about it. Because I was saying, listen, I think one of the reasons why data activation becomes such a challenge is that instrumentation, sending out dashboards and reports is low risk. Because, you know, we can just churn through this forever. Constant state of implementation, re-implementation, sending out reports, there's low risk. But the minute I stick my neck out and say, wait a minute, I have some observations and some things that we can do different in the business. Now, all of a sudden, I put a target on my back. And as someone that may operate from a state of fear, does that target now put my livelihood and my job in jeopardy? So let me, um, let me see if I can go back through my notes really quick. If I can't find it, we'll... We'll go on, um, but I want to see if I can find this tweet from Michael um, to give him proper credit. I it, I don't know if he was thinking about the same thing I've th been thinking about, um, but it did it did kind of here it is it did kind of hit. Um, so this was uh, August eighteenth, so just a few days ago. So I'll just read it word for word. Um, we call it data democratization, but in reality, companies are trapped by cultures that don't support innovation and change, and that's why data doesn't get used. The minute anyone tries anything new, they get destroyed by the politics of their org, and no amount of data will fix it. And while it's a slightly different take or nuance, I think we're saying the exact same thing, right? That, you know, whether whether we're focusing on data democratization or data activation, really using the data. The minute anyone starts doing that, the politics of the organization um, destroy them, which again, if you're in a place where you don't feel safe and comfortable, you're like, uh oh, now my job's at risk. Now my livelihood is at risk. Um, I don't want to stick my neck out. So we get stuck in these endless cycles of reporting. And that's why these dashboards get so big and bloated because we don't know how to take that next step or we do know how to take that next step to actual insights, but we don't want to do it because we're sticking our neck out and putting ourselves at, at risk by, by doing so. And I think it's, it's very, very um, unfortunate, but I think it's a very real conversation we need to have as one of the reasons why we see so many companies stuck in these endless cycles of re-implementation and reporting and never truly get to data activation it's not a more data problem it's not a technology problem it's a it's a people and process problem yeah um yeah i, I like that I, I just earmarked that for for a future episode so th let's definitely dig into into that more but to to kind of wrap it up there it, as you're talking I'm, I'm reminded of that saying of 
well, we've always done it this way. Mm-hmm. When the minute people start to challenge, that's the first line that comes out is, well, we've always done it this way. Yeah. And not only that, we've gone out of our way to not expose change. Um, this is one example of, of a company we worked with um, how years ago went in and analyzed their conversion funnel. And I, and I said, this data looks really, really bizarre and foreign to me. Um, when you're reporting on step two, you're actually reporting on like step one or like it was a delay in the cadence of reporting on the data. And they said, yeah, yeah, we know that. I'm like, what's happening here? It's like, well, we had this issue or this mistake that happened three years ago. And rather than fix it and expose that this was happening and kind of reset our expectations of how customers went through our conversion funnel, we just shifted the data so that, you know, we didn't have to address the new normal of the the way data was. I'm like, how long are we going to do this for the next decade? This is crazy to me. But again, if I'm being forced to be more empathetic, I'm like, okay, I understand it though. Now, you know, that the the analytics team would rather kind of uh, paper over it and try to hide that issue rather than going back to the business and saying, hey, we're trying to make this data cleaner. And in our in our investigation, we found some issues that are going to change how we analyze the data. Now, now they've got a target on the back. So it's like, eh, it's just better to kind of fudge the data and make it look like good, even though it's bad, because we don't want to, you know, ultimately, these people, they don't want to get yelled at. They just want to do their job and go home and get yeah. their paycheck. Exactly. So, and they get yelled at a lot, you know? And so anyway, I, I think, you know, it's an, it's an interesting topic where we're focused on data activation and the different layers of data distribution. Um, but I think it's a very pertinent topic where we start moving from dashboards to reporting that there's a very real breakdown happening here. Like, not from a data perspective, not from a amount of data perspective, not from a technology perspective, but because there's this people and process issue that people don't feel safe in their job when they start to cross over from reports to insights and recommendations. And so they stay at that level, but we have to show progress. So what happens? Well, instead of doing insights and analysis, we'll just add more to our dashboards and create more automated reports because- You know, it's going to give us something to check off to say, well, we created another dashboard and report. Yay, good for us. Pat on the back. Well, you started to answer my next question is, is, you know, again, going back to now, again, comparing reports, reporting and, and insights. The next question I had was, is how is the actual distribution between the two different? And if, you know, from what I'm hearing here, it's not always a mechanics thing. It is truly a cultural thing. Yeah. Uh, think, the, yeah, because then the the risk between the two, depending upon the, in the type of culture you're in, changes dramatically. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it is a cultural thing. It is a people thing. And that um, if I'm if I'm sending out a report, if I'm sending out a dashboard, I'm going to kind of wash my hands of that. It's like, oh, you do what you want with it. You know, I'm not saying anything. I'm not making any drawing any conclusions, not making any recommendations, not giving any insights. It's here's the data, like you do what you want with it, kind of wash my hands of it. The minute I step over that line and I now start to provide in. And again, that's why I think so many companies get stuck on this commentary step, right? Like, well, it went from five to 10. So I can say the data went up. It went up by five points. You know, I'm not making any kind of conclusions. I'm just giving you commentary on what is 
clear in the data. I feel safe with that. But the minute you go from commentary to insights, you've now exposed yourself, right? You now put this target on your back. And in organizations where you have a lot of process and people issues and you have toxic cultures, putting that target on your back of saying, I'm going to move from making a, 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 an obvious observation to providing insights on why it went from five to 10. Now all the culture issues come, right? So, and maybe, maybe a better example, well, it depends on the metric, but maybe a better example is it went from 10 to five. And now all of a sudden, wait a minute, marketing's mad at me. Like, what were you saying? We suck. Like we can't do our job. Like we push bad data into the funnel or, or products saying, what we, we, you're saying we're not experts at UX. Like this is what we do all along. Who the, who the hell are you? Like some analytics guy telling us how to do UX. So you get all of these like political pressures. The minute you go from observing the obvious to drawing some sort of insights on why that happened and many, many people in many, many organizations simply do not feel safe to step over that line. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times I've worked with an organization that they felt they knew it all mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to their customers, how their customers engage. And maybe, you know, there was the, the level of that in the culture, but then specifically when you got into the UX um, some of the product managers, some of the executives, no, no, our, our, our customers engage this way or our customers like it done that way. And they would use a testing tool as, as, as vanity, you know, again, it's, it, it's a fun little toy. It, it's, it's something to play around with. It's fun to show that we're testing, but when it came to like the real changes to the website, they just moved right ahead. And then when numbers did change like that, then it was like, well, what's wrong with the site? Mm -hmm. What happened? It can't be the design I pushed out. It's it's a very, very real problem. And, you know, I don't want to call this person out, um, but it, there was this conversation on Twitter the other day um, complaining about consultants um, and that consultants were annoying and didn't, you know, add no value. And I'm like, uh oh. Do I want to jump into walk this conversation? Away, walk walk away. away. And not to say that, that you don't have consultants that are inexperienced, that have no, pos no position to tell you how to run your business and can be really, can be assholes about it. That absolutely happens. But none of us are perfect. None of us have all the answers. And if we're saying that we're perfect and we have all the answers, we're, we're basically signing up to say we're okay with being mediocre. I mean, at 33.6 as a company, we have many experts that we use externally to come in and help because we want to be elite. We want to be the very best. And we know and are comfortable saying we don't have all the answers. And that's why we want people to come in to help show us our blind spots, show us the holes. Now, can they do that in a more empathetic way? Maybe, but there's a very real cultural problem where we just feel inherently like, no, 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 like we're this multi-billion dollar company that's been around for a hundred years. We do everything perfect. I'm here to tell you, absolutely not. None of them, none of the companies, nobody is perfect. Nobody has it all figured out. And it's a, it's a very big problem that we see. And it often comes up in these data organizations where um, you have to like walk on eggshells because the, the um, precedence has been set that, well, our team is perfect, but we just don't have the bandwidth to get this all done. I'm like, no, they're not perfect. And it's okay to admit that, especially if you want to become elite you have to admit that you're not perfect and you have to embrace getting help to become better. That's how we evolve. But 
I mean, you bring up such a valid point that it's, it's difficult. And I'm going to go back to kind of the earlier stance. I think a lot of this is driven by people working in organizations where they simply don't feel safe to be able to admit that. I don't think deep down that they're, that they've convinced themselves they're perfect. I think they know that they work in an organization where it's unsafe to admit that you're anything but. And so I think that's that's really where we need to be focusing on fixing problems. And it puts us in a very unique position from an analytics perspective in we can go in and do deep insight and stand up world-class implementations all day long. But unless we can address the people and process issues that are holding these companies and teams back from actually activating data, our ability to have an impact on the organizations is going to be limited. And and so are these teams. And I think that's a big reason why you see this revolving door of talent at these organizations. You know, we've thrown around the 16 to 18 month average median tenure. It makes sense, right? Like you get in there, you do busy work for a couple of years, and then it's like, okay, time to move on. You know, I can't do busy work anymore. Um, and I'm not going to stick my neck out here because I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to get fired. It's a real issue. And I, I don't know how to fix it. I mean, like sometimes I don't think you can. And that, that's, that, that, that's not a defeatist mentality. It's just knowing, knowing certain limitations. Um, and again, like, you know, if you, if you talk to anybody who's, been through any kind of recovery program i know a few um they all say the same thing like you can't help anybody until they're ready for help yeah any uh, you know trying to help anybody who doesn't want help who doesn't think they need help in this case organizations with trying to understand their business if they don't want it no matter what you say no matter how direct you are no matter how flashy the presentation they don't want to hear it yeah and and honestly, that's why I'm so excited about the approach that we've we've decided to take, which is a people first approach, because people create cultures, people create process. I don't want to say it would be easier, but it would be easier for us to just do the work, mm-hmm. do this implementation, do this analysis, knowing that we're not really having the impact that we could be having because we're showing work and we're going to get paid for it. But I think we fundamentally care more to just I'll just call it out half asset. And so, you know, the approach that we've decided to take is focusing on people and addressing those problems is incredibly hard and challenging and some days it's like I just don't want to do this anymore. But if we're truly going to have an impact, that's what has to be addressed. Otherwise, we're you know, we're just playing around mm-hmm. unfortunately. You mentioned half-assing it. Have you heard the new buzzword? No. It's called quiet quitting. Uh, and it, it's more or less half-assing your job. Um, and, and believe me, like, again, I've said multiple times, I will continue to say it. I, I'm a workaholic by, by default. And, like, I've had to put things in place to make sure I, when I'm done for the day, I'm done for the day. Yeah. Like I, I've told you before, like one of the things I do at night to make sure I actually go to bed is I have the Wi-Fi turn off. I have the mm-hmm. Wi-Fi in the house turn off. So this way I can't work on my laptop to do work after 11 p.m. Smart. 
Like, <laughs> you know, so like, I mean, the TV, the TV, we have the Apple TV hooked up to it. That's hardwired. I, I've run uh, cables to to the box, to the, the router and everything for that. Yeah. But, um, but no, the, the TV turns off at night or the, the Wi-Fi turns off at night. So, because there at one point I was doing work until 1230 at night, 1 a.m., just because it's like, I, I got to get stuff done. I got to do work. I got to show progress or whatever. Um, but anyway, so we're going back to this, this whole concept of quiet quitting. It's, you know, people are talking about like, well, I'm leaving at five. Well, Hey, listen, I, I've, I've gotten much better at when my day is done. My day is done. Yeah. Not checking email at night, not responding at night. And Hey, listen, I can get that. But what it really is, is it's half-assing your job. Yeah. So you're not actually quitting it, but you're not trying as hard as you should be. You're not trying to make the impact that you could. It's just you're showing up, you're punching a time clock, and you're collecting a check. Remind I, it, it reminds me of a Simpsons episode, and I brought up the quote um, where they were talking about going on strike at the nuclear plant. And Homer says, if you don't like your job, you don't go on strike. You go into work every day, and you do a half-assed job. That's the American way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the Simpsons, we went bowling with some friends the other night. We took the kids out bowling. Mm. And, you know, at one point I walked past my buddy and I'm like, Homer, did you just shine your head in the shine old ball low? <laughs> no, why? <laughs> Classic. Uh, such a brilliant. And I'm going to date myself. I first started watching it when it was on the Tracy Ullman show as a, nice. as a skit. So amazing run by yeah. that franchise good stuff good stuff so cool all right so well, let's go ahead and wrap up here i do like the idea of i want to continue the conversation around you know taking the you know these the risk that you know happens when you start to move beyond just basic reporting because you yeah. when you're talking about that the reason why i want to talk about that more is is we've touched on it with implementation and why implementations become so bloated because it is so easy to show progress in analytics by saying we deployed this new rule or we deployed this new dimension, we have these new metrics available, but nobody's using what you've done before. So same concept. So I want to yeah. continue that, that conversation. It. Cool. Cool. All right, then. Well, good chat today. Um, we'll go ahead and wrap up there and talk to everyone later. See ya. See ya. Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day -day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others.